My name's Rachel and I'll be doing the, um, the Bible reading. Uh, so it's from Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 25. So if you open up your Bibles to follow along. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel. I hope you've been um, enjoying the study in, our, in the book of Galatians. It's um, one of those books that gives us the wonderful clarity we need so that we might understand how we might have a standing before God. And, and I hope you've been finding that encouraging for your own walk and your own faith. And for those of you who are exploring Christianity, hopefully it gives you clarity too that our standing before God is not because of us in any way. Now, I hope you've been bringing your own Bibles and using that and marking it and annotating it. There's an outline on the inside of the order of service. You might find that helpful, but let's pray once again. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word to us that teaches us of the truth we need to learn about you, about us, and about this world, and about the glory of Jesus who brings us to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the... Uh, fascinating stories in the Bible that I've been reflecting on this past week is the story of what happened at the cross, the conversation between the thieves and Jesus. You know that story? It's a fascinating story. You see, people were hurling all sorts of insults towards Jesus, but then one of the thieves on the cross, after rebuking the other thief, he said to Jesus, and what did he say? He said to Jesus in the middle, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And how did Jesus respond? Well, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what I found fascinating was just imagining what happened after that man died. What happened? I mean, we can imagine, can't we? But just imagine for a moment with me. At the gates of heaven, the angel, at the, the gatekeeper said to this thief, Why are you here? 
And the thief responds, well, I'm going to paradise. And then the angel, you know, just follow along with me. Angel saying to him, well, here's the thing. Jesus, in fact, didn't finish what he was saying. What he was meant to say was, you'll be with me in paradise if these three conditions are met. First, you have to do a whole lot more charity. The thief responds, but I couldn't. I died on the cross. I didn't get the chance. Second condition, not just that, but also you have to get your act together. You have to live the life of a good Christian man. And the thief responds, well, I couldn't. I died on the cross. I didn't get a chance. Third condition, and you don't fall asleep during the sermon. Otherwise, you'll not get into paradise. I thought I'd just add that last one just to you know, add a bit of fear in here. But of course, that didn't happen. You see, the thief on the cross staked his eternal destiny upon the promises of Jesus. But let me ask you, do you think that was enough for him to get to paradise? You see, this is something we need to be so clear on because it is a question that asks, is God like us? Is God fickle and conditional upon the promises that he's made? Is he conditional with his promise keeping, a bit like us? You know, he changes the rules of engagement. I said this, but I'm going to change it later on. Or is God one who will keep his promises? We see, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is hammering this point in this passage that trusting in the promises of God is enough. It is enough. What God says he will do, what God promised he will fulfill, it is free, absolutely free, no strings attached. You see, if it was anything else, none of us would have any assurance of salvation whatsoever. And if it's a God who cannot keep his promise, that is not a God worth believing. And so we come to this passage, and that's really the point Paul is trying to make. Paul begins our passage, so let's turn to Galatians 3. Paul begins our passage by getting us to understand God's promises, God's covenant promises, what God promised he will fulfill. Now, some of us may not be aware of what that word covenant means. It means just a, a serious promise. I found this definition helpful. It's a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises, and it is sealed with an oath. It's a bit like a contract, a contract, an agreement. If you sign a contract and your name is on a dotted line, you're expected to keep that agreement. Both parties are expected to keep the agreement of the contract. And so Paul's point here is that once you have signed on the dotted line, it's been ratified. You can't years later come back and say, actually, what I meant on the contract was this, that that clause and that part of the contract was meant to be conditional. You can't do that once it has been signed. And that's Paul's argument here. If we do not expect humans to go back on their contract, how much more so with God? And so verse 15, have a look. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Now, I was thinking about what's a clear human example of a covenant? I think one of the clearest ones is marriage. 
the covenant of marriage. At what point do or does the man and a woman, what point are they considered married? It's not the first date. That's not when they're married. It's not when the guy says, I love you. That's not when they're married. It's not the point when the guy goes on one knee and gives the ring. Not at that point. The moment at which they become married is the moment of the exchanging of the vows, making promises of lifelong faithfulness for richer, for poorer in sickness and in health. And it is at that moment that their status change from being singles to being married. And then from that moment on, whether the husband has been a good husband or he's been a lazy husband, whether the couple have had a good day or a bad day, they do not stop being married because the promise has been made already. The covenant of marriage has been made and it is unconditional. And so the husband and or wife can't, you know, a few years later after being married, go back on the vows and say, actually what I meant on the day was for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, only if you remain rich and healthy. You can't do that. You can't go back on your covenant promises. You can't go back on your vows. And if that is how it works with human covenants, Paul's point is, how much more so with God? He will not go back on his word, what he promised he would fulfill. And that's the point Paul is making here with the example of Abraham. He goes back to Abraham. Paul made the prom- I mean, God made the promise to Abraham, and we read here it was to Abraham and his seed. There were unconditional promises. Now, what Paul does here is a little bit interesting. He goes off on a little digression, so we just have to follow him a bit before we come back onto the main argument. He goes off on a little digression, and he focuses in on the word seed. Seed can be translated offspring or descendants. In the Hebrew word, it is a singular noun, a singular noun. But it can also be a collective noun. And so what that means is that you can have the one seed or many seed, a bit like the word sheep. It's a singular noun or it can be a collective noun. You can have one sheep or many sheep. And so Paul's point here was that when God made his promise to Abraham, they were not merely physical blessings of land, offspring, and blessings, but they were spiritual. And the promises were not only made to Abraham, but to the seed, ultimately to Jesus, the future unique seed, the singular seed. And so Paul's point here was Jesus was not just the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. He says through Jesus that you have worldwide salvation, but Jesus was also the recipient of the promises of God. Isn't that fascinating? When God promised those promises to Abraham, it was ultimately for Jesus. And that's why we read in the New Testament, Jesus is the one who inherits everything. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the firstborn, the heir of all creation. It's for him. And so when God made the promise to Abraham and promised him, Jesus was already there in focus. Look at verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Now the scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. 
Now, that was a little digression. Now he comes back to the main point. And the main point is this. Once God has made his promise, the laws that were given 430 years later through Moses, they do not change the substance of the promise. Those laws do not nullify the promise. They do not suddenly make the promises conditional. Once the promises were made, it cannot be revoked. And so verse 17, that's his point. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. It makes sense. You can't go back on your word. That's what Paul is saying. If we don't do it as humans or we're not meant to do it as humans, how much more so with God? Now again, if we come back to the example of the marriage covenant. After getting married, Yvonne and myself, we had to learn to live together. We were young. We were you know, trying to work it out. And so we had some sort of loose household rules. You get married, you're married, you made your promises, but then you have some rules for, for the household to work in harmony. And so the household rules back then, it was my job to take out the bins. That was a rule for me. I've since given that to my son. But anyway, and it was also my job to mow the lawn. I've also given that to my son. And when we got married, it was Yvonne's job to, in fact, do many things, which she still does brilliantly. Now, in case you're thinking, this is a husband who does not do much, I do. I at least check the doors at night. That's my job still. But even with these household rules, which is good for the marriage, the rules do not establish the marriage. It was the promise. It was the vows that established the marriage such that if I forget to take out the bins, our marriage is not at stake. You'd be glad to know. Because the laws do not do away with the promise. That's Paul's point. His point was that Abraham came before Moses. Promise before law. And perhaps for us to appreciate how serious God was with keeping his promises is far more serious at promise-keeping than we could ever be. It's worth us understanding how God made the covenant, the promise with Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, God asked Abraham, come out, look at the night sky, see all the stars, you'll have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And what did Abraham do? He believed. And then God said, well, for me to seal that promise to you. What did God say? In chapter 15 of Genesis, God said, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. This was on the same night God made that promise. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them into and arrange the halves opposite each other. So what's the picture there? Abraham's brought these animals to God, and he's slaughtered these animals. And the carcasses are divided in two. They're split in two, so there's a little path in between them. You see, what was happening was how covenants were made in the Old Testament or in the ancient world. What, would you, what you would do when 
two people were to make a promise or a covenant uh, with each other, what they would do was just exactly that. They would take the animals, cut it in two, put it on either side, and the two parties would walk in between the dead animals. It was a graphic way of saying, if I break my end of the promise, if I break my end of the agreement or the covenant, I'll be cut like these dead animals. It's another way of saying, over my dead body will I break the promise. It's why in the Old Testament, when a covenant is made, the Hebrew verb, this is interesting to note, the Hebrew verb is not to make a covenant, but the verb is to cut a covenant. It's literally to cut a covenant. And so cut me up like these dead animals. And so what happened that night after Abraham prepared those dead animals? Well, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then we jump to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with the blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abram. And so what happened? Who went through the dead animals? Well, Abram was asleep. He didn't walk through at all. Only God went through alone. So what does that mean? Well, what it meant was that the covenant was what God made or what God cut. And it was only up to God to keep it. The onus was on God alone to fulfill the promise. It depended upon God alone, not Abraham. He was asleep. He didn't have to keep any side of the promise because he was asleep. Only God walked through. And so that's Paul's point. God is deadly serious about keeping his promise. And so when the laws of Moses came 430 years later, it didn't suddenly make those promises of God conditional. And that's Paul's point. Verse 18 now. Have a look. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And so Paul is saying, if God made a promise, he will keep it. If God made a promise, he will fulfill it. And so it naturally follows, if you're following along with the logic of Paul, we'll have to ask, well, why did God give the laws in the first place if the promise was enough? Why Moses? Why the Ten Commandments? Well, good thing you ask, because Paul anticipated that question. Look at verse 19 now. What then was the purpose of the law? And Paul's answer it was to expose the sins of the people of God. Verse 19. It was added because of, or more literally, for the sake of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. You see, without the laws, without the laws of God, we would not really know that we have broken the laws. We would not know that we have transgressed the laws. On our last uh, family holiday, we went to Adelaide and we went on one of the trips. We went to Mount Lofty, the Botanic Gardens there. Anyone been there? Mount Lofty, it's, um, 
it's a botanic garden and let me say my boys they weren't very excited or that's probably an understatement and I probably remember when I was young like them I didn't really enjoy gardens but now that I'm old gardens are not too bad anyway but we went there and we went for a family walk around and we walked up this path up the mountain beside this little waterfall creek thing but then by the end of the walk Esther pointed out look there's a sign you're not meant to go there. We've done it already. But you're not meant to go there. We have trespassed. And we're meant to feel guilty. We didn't really, but we should have. But the sign showed that we have trespassed. We have broken the law. Now, of course, the laws of God are far more serious than that. They're moral laws. And now we get this interesting comment about how the laws were given. It's somewhat, again, a little bit of a digression, but look at it. Verse 19. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator, that is Moses. And then verse 20. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Now, if you find that verse complicated, you're not alone. We had a little bit of uh, trouble in our growth group trying to work out what, what does that mean. There are about 300 different interpretations of that verse about what it means. But perhaps what it means is this. Perhaps what Paul is getting at is this. The law required the presence of a mediator, Moses, between God and his people. Whereas the promise, you don't need a mediator. God dealt directly to Abraham without a mediator. And so that reflects the oneness of God. And so it was Paul's way of saying the promise is superior to the laws. That's one interpretation. There's about another 299. But in effect, Paul is saying wedding vows are far more important than the household rules. Promises are more important than the laws. But Paul then goes on to say, though you have the promise and the law, they're not in opposition. They are both important and they both have their place. You see, it's the promise that establishes the relationship, just like marriage vows. But it was the law that governs the relationship, just like the household rules. They're not in opposition. And so that's his point. Now we're up to verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. They're not in opposition. They have their different place and purpose. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness could, would certainly have come by the law. But it doesn't, because they have a different purpose. And so what was the purpose of the law? Well, Paul now ends by giving two metaphors to help us understand the function of the law, the function of the laws of God. And the two metaphors are the law functions like one a guard, a prison guard, and two, a guardian. So the first picture, the law functions a bit like a military guard who holds the prisoner captive, locks them up. That's what the law does. I mean, you put up the law against any person's life. It's like a mirror. You put up the law against your life and you look into the law. What do you see? We don't see a perfect person we don't see a perfect human being we see all our flaws and blemishes 
We see our failings. We see where we have fallen short. We are sinners when we place our lives against the mirror of the law. And that's Paul's point, verses 22 and 23. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then verse 23, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Now, isn't that interesting? The law is described like a prison guard. It holds us captive. It holds the whole world captive, like a prisoner of sin. Why? I found John Stott helpful in explaining this. John Stott, he said, After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. Let's pause on that point. Before I need to know that I need a saviour, I need to know how bad I really am, how much I have failed, how far I have fallen from grace. I actually need to know how wicked my heart is and how helpless I am. And so John Stott said, he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath, sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. You see, that was what the law did. It's like that prison guard holding us captive. You are a failure. You do not meet God's standards. You are a sinner. It provokes sin as well. It's a bit like, you know, you tell a child, do not touch the cookie jar. Once you tell a child that, what does the child want to do? They're tempted. I want to touch it now because you told me not to. It's the forbidden fruit. And once the child takes hold of a cookie, then that same law condemns the child. It exposes, it provokes, and it condemns. The law keeps us locked up like prisoners and there's no escape. And if anyone knew that well, it was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew that well. You see, if anyone was diligent enough in keeping all the laws of God, it was Paul. He said in Philippians, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to live God's way? I was it. As to the law, he said, a Pharisee. As to the righteousness in the law, faultless. But yet, what, what did Paul see in his own heart? He was able to say this in Romans 7, and I suspect we can relate to this, his internal struggle. Paul said, So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Let's put ourselves there. When I want to do good, when I want to be generous, sacrificial, caring, loving, when I want to do the good things. What did Paul say? Evil is right there with me. What does that look like? When I want to be generous, evil is there because it's getting me to, well, you want to be generous just so that people might acknowledge your generosity. You want to love and serve just so that you might get some, some of the applause and praise of men and women. You, you just want to do good because you want to feel good about yourself. There is this internal struggle. Evil is right there with me. And then Paul goes on, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, 
But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law in my mind and make me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. You see, the law is meant to be crushing. You put up the law against your life and you feel, I cannot meet that standard. I'm nowhere near perfect. I have fallen from grace. And it's meant to leave us crushed. And that's why Paul goes on to say, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the first function of the Lord is like a prison guard. Holds us captive to show us that you cannot save yourself. You need a rescuer. You need a saviour. Now the second metaphor, which is where Paul ends in this passage. The second metaphor is like a guardian like a tutor or a governess. You know, Sound of Music, Maria, the governess, who, who's responsible for caring for the children, teaching them while they're growing up, providing boundaries and guidelines for how they are to grow. You cannot experience order freedom in the world yet. You know, you have to say no as a guardian. You have to say you cannot do that. And so the governess or the guardian needs to provide strict rules so that there's guidance until they come of age, until they grow up, or until Jesus comes again, or until Jesus comes in the first place. Look at verses 24 and 25. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. It was put in charge, verse 25. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. And so that's the second metaphor, like a guardian to teach us, you need a saviour. And so finally, what does all this mean for us? Well, what this passage teaches us is that we need to understand rightly the place of God's promise and the place of God's law. Not just as an idea, but what it actually means for us as Christians today. And to understand rightly the place of God's promise and law is to understand the order of God's promise and law. What comes first, promise or law? Promise or law? Well, the promise came before the laws, which means grace precedes obedience. Get into the kingdom first before you learn to live like you belong to the kingdom, as opposed to trying to live like you belong and then hoping that that gets you in. Grace precedes obedience. Now, why is that important? What's a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because if we get the order wrong, if we switch it around, if we mix it up, it in fact impinges on the character of God. God is no longer as gracious as he is. And the glory of God is denied. You see, if I put obedience before promise, then I'm saying I can make or get my way into heaven myself. I can be good. I can earn my place. If my acceptance before God is because of my obedience, he actually makes Christianity just like every other religion of the world. And then what would heaven look like? Well, heaven would look like a whole bunch of people walking around with big heads and some with even bigger heads. I got me here. But of course, God would have none of that. I did not send my son to 
die for you to be crucified and then for you to think that you can make your way into heaven? Not at all. God's not going to share his glory with anyone else. God is God. You see, getting the order wrong gets salvation wrong. Getting the order wrong gets God wrong. What happens first? Promise and then law. Grace and then obedience. And when I get that order right, what do I do? I preserve grace. It is utterly the gracious gift of God. Undeserved. I cannot work for it. No strings attached. And when I preserve grace, I also preserve the glory of God. It is all of God. So that in heaven, all the glory is God's. You're there. I'm there. Not because of us. Not because of you or me. But because of God. All the glory is God. And he will not share his glory with another. And so if there is anyone of us here this morning thinking, I don't think I'm good enough for God. I don't think I'm acceptable to God. I'm not ready to become a Christian. You got the order wrong. You got the order wrong. It's grace before obedience. Earlier this year, we had a funeral here at this church of one of our beloved members. It was a wonderful funeral, a moving service, because it was a service so filled with hope. Now, a man who, there were many non-Christians at the funeral service, but one of the men, who's not a Christian, afterwards he shared with some, and he also shared with me, he was also quite moved by the service, he said, I wish I had the faith of the others, the other Christians in that service. And I said to him, well, you can. Because faith is simply taking hold of the promises of God in Jesus Christ. It's free. It's grace. Get the order right. Grace first. None of you. You want the hope of heaven like the one who passed away? Be saved first. Take hold of grace first. Now that man's yet to believe, but I've been praying for him. You see, get the order right. Grace before obedience, so that the glory is God's alone. And when you get the order right, grace before obedience, then we'll also understand obedience for Christians rightly. You see, what happens when I think obedience before I'm saved? What happens then when I mix up the order? Well, my obedience will look very, very different. I'll be very anxious. And my obedience is because I'm, in fact, selfish. You see, if I think that my obedience, by my obedience, I can become acceptable to God, I'll be very, very anxious with my life. Very anxious. I'll be somewhat paralyzed by what I do or what I may do. I'll never know whether I've done enough for God. You see, if it was 50% God, 50% me, I'll never know whether I've achieved that 50%. Or if it's 90% God, 10% me, I'll still never know whether I've achieved that 10%. Or let's just say it's 99% God and just 1% me, only 1%. I'll still never know I've achieved that 1%. I'll be anxious and I'll have no assurance whatsoever. And it's also a selfish obedience if, self, if obedience happens before grace. It's selfish because I'll obey the laws, 
I'll care for the poor, I'll give, I'll be generous, I'll go to church, but I'm really only doing it because I'm going to get something out of it. It's a selfish obedience. And that's not the type of obedience God wants nor desires. It makes you think, doesn't it? You know, as you live your life now, you're trying to obey God. What is the motivation of your obedience? Is it to get something out of God when we try to do good? But if I get the order right, grace first, and then obedience, then I'm obeying God because I have already been accepted by God. I've already been welcomed into the family of God. I'm already considered a child of God. And I've got nothing to lose. And so I obey God out of love for Him. Because He loves me so. I care for the poor. Not because I think God's going to give me something. But because I really do care for the poor. I delight in God and I want to be a delight to God. I'm not out to get anything. My obedience will look so different. That is Christian obedience. You see, if Jesus gave me his life, if Jesus bled and died for me, what could I hold back from him? You see, for Christians, for us to ask, is there a sacrifice that is too big for us to offer Jesus out of love and obedience? You have to say no. I offer my life. I offer my life. There's no sacrifice too much. And so it's worth us considering, those of us who are Christians, what does our life of obedience look like? Do I really take seriously the life that Jesus has won for me now, that I'm obeying out of love for him? You see, as Christians, we don't do away with the laws. We still obey, but we obey for a different motivation. Do I live for myself as a Christian? Do I keep holding things back? Do I think that I need to build up my own kingdom? that I reserve and hold back things, my affections from God? No. And it's worth asking, isn't it, especially those of us who have been, become a Christian only in recent years, has there been a change in your life, in your obedience to God? Because there should be. In fact, there better be. If you understand grace first, and then you obey, you obey because you have it all already and you've got nothing to lose. You see, the life of a Christian is not a life of lawlessness. I cannot just be the world, like the world around me, live in excess, build my kingdom, be impure in my thoughts and actions, do whatever I please because I think I've got grace already. No, that is wrong understanding of obedience. The life of a Christian is one of joyful, humble, willing obedience to God out of love because he loved me first. Grace first, then obedience. Get the order right, and we'll understand grace, and we'll understand obedience. And so let me ask you finally, do you have the order right in your own life? You see, if we come back to the story of that thief on the cross, did he get the order right? What do you think? Well, let's imagine what happened. The angel, why should you be allowed into paradise? The thief responds. Well, the man in the middle, the middle cross, Jesus, he promised I could be here. He promised. And that's enough. That's enough. That is grace. He got the order right. And that will be the same for each one of us when we face God. Why should you be allowed into paradise? 
Jesus promised. Jesus promised. Grace first. And so if that is the glory, the wonder of the gospel, praise be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder, the glory of the gospel, that it is absolutely free to us in Jesus Christ. Free yet costly to you. Help us, Lord, to understand your grace rightly so that we preserve your glory. And help us to understand what Christian obedience looks like, that we do so out of love for you. We offer our lives as living sacrifices. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.